Welcome to Mike's Notes episode 44. Today, even more Amazon. In the last episode of the podcast, we looked at Amazon and the idea of disruption theory and Jeff Bezos and how a lot of those different pieces fit together, how Amazon was a good example of Clayton Christensen's disruption theory. And that was one key part of the book. Another key part of the book, The Everything Store, was how hard Jeff Bezos worked and how smart he is. And the third tier of that book was just sort of a general collection of things that I learned. And that's what this episode is going to be about. It's the general collection of things that were common themes from other podcasts and books. All of these quotes from Bezos and from author Brad Stone are from the book The Everything Store. And I really enjoyed this book because it didn't feel ephemeral. It didn't feel like it was just... Uh, popular because Amazon is popular and Bezos is popular and because of all the rocket and space stuff that is going on. It felt like this boat, this book really found a theme of timelessness that the reporting Stone did was deep and thorough and the things that he found were things that we can apply to many other areas. This podcast is going to look at six different things that I took away from the book. One is second-level thinking and how you can think at the second level more easily. Two is you'll, you'll never be ready for whatever challenges are ahead of you. Number three is that you have to argue well and refine your points to a fine tip. Four is you have to be lucky. Five is the value of decentralized command and why it's important in complex adaptive systems. And number six is that you always need to be learning. You ready? One. I've talked in other podcasts, episodes, and on my blog, The Waiters Pad, about why second level thinking is important and how you can think more deeply uh, about different ideas. The idea of second level thinking comes from Howard Marks, and it's this idea that to be different than others and to get different results than others, you have to think more deeply about a problem, that you have to think about the second order effects of your decisions and situations. And Amazon has an interesting way that goes about this. Before I tell you what Amazon's secret is, let me tell you what my favorite riddle is. Rather, let me have John McClane tell you what my favorite riddle is. Now, do I have your attention? As I was going to St. Ives, I met a man with seven wives. Every wife had seven sacks, every sack has seven cats. Every cat has seven kittens, kittens, cats, sacks, and wives. How many were going to St. Ives? My phone number is 555 and the answer. Call me in 30 seconds or die. Now, if you've seen the movie, you know how this plays out. So if you want to pause the podcast and do the multiplication in your head, you can do that now. Otherwise... All right, seven guys with seven wives. Shut up, McLean. I'm good at this. Seven guys with seven wives. Shut the hell up, McLean. He says seven wives with seven sacks. Seven, seven times seven is 49. Now tell me the rest. Oh, your sack with seven sacks. What, you listening? Yeah, I was listening. I didn't hear every single... What the heck wrong with you? I had a real bad hangover for one thing. All right, all right, all right. Seven wives times seven, 49 with seven cats. Seven times 49 is 343, right? What are you asking me or telling me? I'm telling you. 343 times seven is... 24. 2,401. That's what you got, right? Yeah, that's what I got. No, wait, wait, it's a trick. It's a trick. What do you mean? I forgot about the man. 
What man? Forget the man. We got ten seconds left. How many were going to St. Ives? No, Who's going to St. Ives then? The guy. Just the guy. Just one guy. The answer is one. One guy. How do you dial one? Five 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 zero 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 one. Zero zero one. Just one guy's going. Hello, John. Yeah, piece of cake. Give us something harder next time. So maybe you did the multiplication in your head. Maybe you didn't. I don't know. But what I want to point out here. What is really important here is if you thought about doing the multiplication, if you started going down the path of figuring out 7 times 7 times 7 times 7 and so forth, because that is the default mode of thinking. That's where your first reaction is to be. Part of the reason that's a problem is because our first reactions can be really bad choices. Theories about information processing suggest that if we present information in a unexpected manner, then it nudges us to thinking about it in a different way. That is, we get away from the immediate knee-jerk reaction and to doing the multiplication like in Die Hard. This is most often shown with the bat and the ball problem given to college students. And that problem looks a little like this. A bat and a ball costs $1.10. The bat costs $1 more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? And I'll let you figure out the answer or Google it on your own. But the key finding from this is that when the information is presented in a hard-to-read font, more students get it right. And the theory goes is that that hard-to-read font nudges us out of that default. It prevents us, it doesn't prevent us, it suggests to us that we should pay a different kind of attention to the situation. And Amazon does this in their own special way. Amazon does this because they don't use PowerPoints in their presentations. They have their employees write these six-page narratives laying out their different points so that they can't, as one employee said, hide between the bullet points in PowerPoint. So they have to think through information in a different way. They have to present it. They have to write basically what is a press release for their product so that they can understand it and how it is going to be seen by the market and seen as the end product. While this is an interesting psychology finding, we don't want to Gladwellian it. That is, we don't want to look at this as a silver bullet solution. There are no such things as silver bullet solutions, and any time you find one or see one or are suggested one by someone, you should turn and go the other way. There are only lead bullet solutions to problems, especially what we call in the blog black box problems. So we just want to look at this tool as presenting information in a different way. As that, just a tool, it's one of many things you need in your toolbox to approach and solve hard problems. Two. This is what Stone writes in the book. By the first weeks of 1996, revenues were growing 30 to 40% a month a frenzied rate that undermined attempts at planning and required such a dizzying pace that employees later found gaps in their memory when they tried to recall this formative time. No one had any idea how to deal with that kind of growth, so they all made it up as they went along. This is starting to seem like a late-night glass-of-wine confessional from people that are involved in big projects. If you catch those people in an honest and reflective state, They'll admit that they often had no idea what they were doing in the moment that things happened. You can take swimming lessons, but building a big company like Amazon seems like it's a lot of treading water. This is true in other domains as well. 
Michael Lombardi said on the Knowledge Project podcast that a lot of times during a football season, you don't get a chance to get ahead. You have to do all of your getting ahead work before the season, and that during the season, you're just trying to keep up with the pace. Angela Duckworth wrote in her book, Grit, As anyone who has started an organization from scratch can tell you, there are a million tasks, big and small, and no instruction manual for any of them. When Gene Kranz showed up to be part of the Mercury program at NASA, he was picked up by a test pilot that was driving his own car. When Kranz got to the station they were working at, he realized there weren't manuals written for any of this. He didn't know what he was doing, but he helped make it up as they went along. And part of Kranz's contribution to the space program is that he was writing things down. He was uh, very detailed in his note-taking and his work so that things could be repeated so that the same mistakes uh, didn't get made a second time. In his book, Failure to Launch, he wrote, Without knowing much about anything, I was telling people how to do everything. Writing the rules for how to control team would support the Mercury Redstone launch. Since there were no books written on the actual methodology of space flight, we had to write them as we went along. Phil Knight tells some great stories about the early days of Nike in his book, Shoe Dog, and one of my favorite ones was he assigned an employee to work in a factory in New England. And this factory was just having all kinds of troubles and it needed turned around and it needed to be fitted to Nike specifications. And the guy said to Knight that he thought he would be in over his head if he sent them there because he just wasn't used to doing this kind of work. And Knight recalls looking at him and saying, over your head, we're all in over our heads, way over. So there's this sense that you're never ready for the thing that you're going to do, that you're always going to be treading water or just staying on the treadmill or just barely keeping up. And that seems like it's really normal. What you want to do is take a piece of advice from Andy Grove and you want to prepare like a fireman prepares for fires. You want to um, always be ready for something. You want to train as best you can and know that in the moment uh, you'll not be prepared for what's going to happen, but you can do your best. At Amazon, Bezos has a different analogy. Stone writes that Bezos was looking for versatile managers. He called them athletes who could move fast and get big things done. So Bezos understands that you need this flexibility and adaptability and, and somebody who is going to welcome situations that are challenging because you'll never be fully prepared for whatever situations may come up. Three. Good organizations and the people within good organizations argue well. No one person knows everything and ideas need sharpened in conversation. This is what Stone writes. Amazon's culture is notoriously confrontational, and it begins with Bezos, who believes that truth springs forth when ideas and perspectives are banged against each other, sometimes violently. Credit in organizations and situations is like a power law distribution. We know of Steve Jobs, we know of Wozniak, we know of Cook, we know of Jordan, Pippin, Ori, we know of Buffett, Munger, and... Buffett, Munger... Well, that proves the point. We don't know who the third person at Berkshire Hathaway is. So we see a lot of credit given to those people that are at the head of an organization. But behind them is this collective force. Behind good organizations is this collective force of people who sharpen and refine ideas. Lori Woolever was on the Salt of the Earth podcast talking about uh, her career working with people like Mario Batali and Anthony Bourdain. She said uh, that those 
high profile people she works with work crazy hard, but they certainly don't do all their things. Even the recent cookbook that she co-wrote with Bourdain was a joint effort. There was ideas that Bourdain had. There were things that he came to the cookbook with that were fully formed and that made it in almost exactly as he thought they should. But there were other things that he needed her feedback on, that he needed her to edit, that he needed her to sharpen the point of. So any good situation is going to have people that talk and communicate and argue well. You have to argue and remain friends. You have to argue and then get beers. That's the kind of arguing well that people consistently say works. Amazon had that. One example of it was Joy Covey, the early CFO, who, Stone writes, became an intellectual foil to Bezos and a key architect of Amazon's early expansion. I didn't get the sense from the book that Bezos was combative for the sake of being combative, but more for the sake of truth. He is another character in this book. He is relentless, and once you read the book, if you read the book, you'll get this different appreciation for Amazon, that Amazon is just not going to be denied. Amazon reminded me of the unstoppable force, that is, that Bezos was just not going to be denied. But he had a lot of help along the way to help sharpen his ideas. As Amazon grew larger, Bezos added the position that is now known as technical advisor, and his first appointee was Andy Jassy. This is what Stone writes. Jassy would define the shadow role of a quasi-chief of staff, and today the position of Bezos' shadow, now formerly known as technical advisor, is highly coveted and has broad visibility within the company. For Bezos, having an accomplished assistant on hand to discuss important matters with and ensure that people follow up on certain tasks is another way to extend his reach. Bezos wanted another person who could think like him, but not completely, and this is true of a lot of partnerships. The Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger duo is like this. Ditto for Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz. Bill Belichick has Ernie Adams, too. If we start to look for this idea of arguing well and having good relationships and challenging each other but having the same direction of your compass about where you want to go is really important for people who become super successful. You have to argue well to find the truth. Stephen King writes that the truth in a story of fiction is like a fossil. The story is there. Something that is true to the characters and the situation is there. You just have to dig it up like an archaeologist. It means flighting, like Eric Weiner talks about in The Geography of Genius. It means working together for the same ends, but not always agreeing with each other. That's what it means to argue well, and that's something that Amazon has done really well. Four. Amazon and Jeff Bezos have gotten lucky. Amazon fits the two-jar model that Michael Mobison writes about in his book, The Success Equation. There were the high-skill draws, like Bezos being really smart and really relentless. Those are things that Jeff Bezos had control of. And Amazon did other things, made other choices that were in their control that really helped them out. But there were also high-luck draws in Amazon's experience. That is, they had outcomes that were favorable to them versus ones that could have been really unfavorable. For example, Stone writes in 2000, while other dot-coms merged or perished, Amazon survived through a combination of conviction, improvisation, and luck. Their luck wasn't done there in 2000. Amazon Web Services was a bit of luck also. Bezos said, Developers are alchemists, and it's our job to do everything we can to get them to do their alchemy. He knew there would be something to 
providing the Amazon Web Service. Not the thing that it became, but the concept of what it was. But he didn't know what it was. So in a sense, they were a little lucky in that it's grown to become the behemoth that it is. Even the chief Amazon product, the Kindle, benefited from a bit of luck. This is what Stone writes. In a sense, Amazon got lucky. A technology perfectly suited for long-form reading on a device and terrible for everything else just happened to be maturing after a decade of development. So if the Kindle didn't have this e-ink, and it wasn't the first e-reader to have e-ink, but it was the first reader to have e-ink at the right time, that section of the book about the early days of Kindle reminded me a lot about the iPod. The iPod succeeded because of MP3s. In the book, How Music Got Free, uh, there's this great discussion about piracy and incentives and a whole host of other things that led to the digitalization of music. And one of those was this MP3 format becoming popular. And Apple, whether it was through luck or skill, just provided the perfect thing when people were getting all these mp3s. At the personal level, Jeff Bezos was really lucky too. This is what Stone writes. At age 8, Bezos scored highly on a standardized test, and his parents enrolled him in the Vanguard program at River Oaks Elementary School, a half-hour drive from their home, where a local company donated the excess capacity on its mainframe computer to the school, and the young Bezos led a group of friends in connecting to the mainframe via a teletype machine that sat in the school hallway. Think about how, how fortunate Jeff Bezos is right now. He is eight years old. He's a, he wants to get into the school. His parents want him to get into the school that's half an hour away. So somebody had to get them there. I, the book doesn't say whether there were buses or anything, but there's this series of hoops that a parent, parents have to jump through to get their kids into a school like this. And Bezos was lucky in part because of his mother. This is what Stone writes. Jackie Bezos prevailed on the local school officials to let her son into the middle school's gifted program, despite the fact that the program had a strict one-year waiting period. You want to account for Jeff's success? Look at Jackie, says Bezos' childhood friend, Joshua Weinstein. She's the toughest lady you'll ever meet, and also the sweetest and most loyal. So, we have this situation where Bezos has a mother and a stepfather who are just amazing, incredible people. So Bezos is smart on his own, but you you have this situation that is just perfect for him. This situation reminded me a lot of the Bill Gates story that Malcolm Gladwell tells in the book Outliers. This is what Gladwell writes. The Mother's Club, that is the group of mothers at, at Gates' school, the Mother's Club at school did a rummage sale every year, and there was always the question of what the money would go to, Gates remembers. Some went to the summer program where inner-city kids would come to the campus. Some of it would go to teachers that year. They put $3,000 into a computer terminal down this funny-looking room that we subsequently took control of. It was kind of an amazing thing. So, here we have two incredible technology entrepreneurs, Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos, who... Just as the internet is taking off, just as technology as the sector is exploding, they get access to computers at an age when so few other people did. So in that way, both of them are brilliant and they are smart. But they also had the advantage of having great parents that were invested in their success. You can't control who your parents are. In a lot of ways, that's part of the luck or unlock of life. But... Um, we can control the people who influence us. One of my favorite quotes from the Roman philosopher Seneca is this. They say you can't choose your parents, that they have been given to us by chance. But the good news is we can choose to be the sons of whoever, whomever we desire. 
There are many respectable fathers scattered across the centuries to choose from. Select a genius and make yourself their adopted son. You can even inherit their name and make claim to be a true dependent and then go forth and share this wealth of knowledge with others. This is what Seneca was writing 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago. No internet, no libraries full of books, no Twitter accounts, no Gary Vaynerchuk making these motivational videos and posting them on YouTube every week. There was none of that, but Seneca still saw there were people that you could be their adopted sons and daughters of. There were people who could you, you could choose to let them influence your life. So even though Gates and Bezos are incredibly brilliant and incredibly lucky for the parents they have, you can choose to be the son or daughter of whomever you want. There is luck involved, but there's also some things you can control. There are some areas you can put forth some skill and some effort. Five. Bezos has introduced a style of decentralized command at Amazon. This is what he says. A hierarchy isn't responsive enough to change. I'm still trying to get people to do occasionally what I ask. And if I was successful, maybe we wouldn't have the right kind of company. So just to unpack that, Stone writes, Bezos's counterintuitive point was that coordination among employees wasted time and that the people closest to the problems were usually in the best position to solve them. In his book, Only the Paranoid Survive, Andy Grove uh, writes about the challenge of balancing his opinion with the people who have the winds of the real world blow in their face. Amazon's solution to this is what they call two pizza teams. The idea is, is that if a group of people are working late on a problem, there shouldn't be more people than what two pizzas can feed. Neil Roseman put it this way, autonomous working units are good, things to manage working units are bad. Decentralized command works really well in complex adaptive systems where things are always changing. CEOs like Tom Murphy in the book The Outsiders said to hire the best people you can and leave them alone. Warren Buffett suggested to hire well and manage little. So if you are in a situation that is regularly changing and the things that you do change the situation and the system, that is if you are in a complex adaptive system, like in a business ecosystem or in a natural ecosystem or on the internet ecosystem, any of those places where if you say or do something and that changes the conditions of the system, decentralized command is often the better style of management to go with. Six. ABL, always be learning. It surprised me in the book about how many other people were mentioned, how many people Bezos talked to and got feedback from and almost did deals with, and how many books he read and the people he negotiated with. The whole host of people, the cast of characters in this book really surprised me. And I think part of the reason is that Jeff Bezos is always learning from other people. When Newton said that he's only achieved what he has because he stood on the shoulders of giants, he was trying to uh, give honor and recognition to the people who came before him. It almost seems like Bezos is doing this because he thinks it's a race up the wall, and if you stand on the shoulders of what other people have already figured out, then uh, you get a little bit of a head start. Anything that someone else did that worked, Bezos seemed to try. He met with Jim Senegal, the founder of Costco, who told him, you can fill Safeco Field with the people that don't want to sell to us. The lesson with that is that some people are not going to like what you're doing, especially uh, in the situation of Costco and Amazon, where both of them are trying to have razor-thin margins, and so they're trying to buy things in volume, and if they make more 
orders from a provider, they want better prices. So they want their margins to lower as well. So Senegal and Bezos are both in this situation where providers don't like them. That reminded me of the John Boyd quote that he told his accomplices. So you got your reward, you got kicked in the teeth. That means you were doing good work. Getting kicked in the teeth is a reward for good work. So if you're going to change things, if you're really going to disrupt things, you need to be ready for some pushback. And the best way you get around that pushback is to always be learning, to always be figuring things out. When Bezos uh, put forth that he wanted to build Amazon Web Services and that he wanted them to be like building blocks that you could fit together if you were a developer in different ways, he, he kind of wanted them to be like Legos. He got the idea from a book that he read, a book that he read during Think Week, which is when he took a week off to go read and to think. And he might have gotten that idea from Bill Gates. So we get this, uh, this chain of ideas that leads us into this totally new area. Books are often a great source for this, for always be learning. And it's recommended by people like Bezos and Gates and Munger that uh, you can learn so much from books. And that's what I get out of books. And that's what I try to share on the podcast and the blog. But you can also uh, be learning by doing. You can be learning by making mistakes. As Charlie Munger said, if we hadn't bought C's candy, we wouldn't have bought Coke. And the idea was there that uh, Munger and Buffett had to shift their thinking from one of value to one of comparative advantage. And that... Those two investment styles, while they had similar techniques for figuring out a company and for understanding a company, they didn't view management the same way. They didn't view branding and moats the same way. So they had to do the first thing. They had to buy the C's candy to figure out that they should buy Coke as well because it was valuable in similar ways. There's another story in the book about Jeff Bezos climbing around the conveyor belts in a factory where orders were getting messed up. There's a consultant named Stephen Graves there, and this is what Graves said. I didn't know Jeff Bezos, but I just remember being blown away by the fact that he was up there with his sleeves rolled up, climbing around the conveyors with all of us. We were thinking critically and throwing around some crazy ideas about how we can do this better. So there's this idea that Bezos is always learning, always experimenting. His phone, the Amazon phone, was a disaster. They spent millions, maybe billions of dollars trying to get this phone thing figured out and they failed. But it doesn't matter when you're at Amazon because you don't know what is going to succeed. I I see this a lot when there's criticisms of scientific research. My undergraduate degree was at Bowling Green State University. And at the time, Bowling Green had one of the largest collection of fruit flies in the nation. And that was always good for a joke as I gave campus tours. And there was always... Um, there's always a letter to the editor or comments about, well, why are we doing this research on fruit flies and their reproductive habits? Like, what does that have to do with anything? And the point is, is that we don't know what anything has to do with anything until we figure it out. We need to do lots of experiments and always be learning from those experiments and figuring things out. In the same way that Bezos read a book, thought about providing a technology service in module Lego-like blocks, told his team to build it, and got the idea from all of the process behind that from someone else who took a week to read and think, shows you that it's not easy to figure things out. The Amazon Echo is another great um, example of this, where this Amazon Echo looks like it's going to be a device that's very popular, um, that we're going to see in a lot of homes, especially as Christmas gifts, I'm guessing. But nobody could have predicted that. If people could have predicted that, it would have been built by Microsoft, and it would have been built by Apple, or it would have been built by Samsung. But no one knew because it required experimentation to get there, and experimentation requires learning. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed Brad Stone's book, The Everything Store. Uh, just to review, second level thinking is hard to do, but we can nudge people to it. We can get them out of their default ruts or their default tracks by changing the way information is presented, whether that is via a podcast and listening to it or um, changing the font of something. In fact, one of my favorite things to do is to read Ben Thompson's free article from Stratechery and then listen to him talk about it on the Exponent podcast, where even though the subject matter is the same, experiencing it in two different ways leads me to understanding it better. The second thing we talked about today is that you'll never be ready. Whatever obstacles you face are only obstacles because you're not ready for them. If you could do them, they would have been things you have done and you would have moved on from them, but you will never be ready for the challenges. So just get comfortable in that discomfort. The third thing we said was to argue well. This is really important for any relationship, whether it's a marriage, whether you're dating, whether you're partners, or whether you're the boss of an organization. At any level you're at, you're at peers. And if you can talk to really smart people and argue well and get pushed back in a cordial way, then you'll tend to end up with better outcomes. The fourth thing was that you have to get lucky, although don't overemphasize what is luck and what is skill. Anything that you can do, any way that you can affect an outcome is skill, and that's where you should focus your effort. The fifth is decentralized command and the value it is as a system for management and complex adaptive systems. And the sixth thing we talked about was always be learning. Life takes a lot of experimentation and the way you experiment better is to always be learning. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mike Sanders. Thank you very much. Now, why don't you make like a tree and get out of here? It's leave, you idiot. Make like a tree and leave. You sound like a damn fool when you say it wrong. All right, then, leave and take your book with you.